we're going to look at heaven today, uh, and probably over maybe the next couple of Sundays, we have created a, caric a caricature of heaven that is not actually biblical. Um, a lot of things that we believe about heaven are not true. Uh, we've mixed metaphors, and we say, well, yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous to think that we're going to live in the clouds and play harps forever, you know. But there's streets of gold, and I'm going to live in a mansion. Like, that's cool. We come up with stuff that's not in the Bible. Shockingly, the Bible has very, 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 very little to say about what we call heaven is like. Why is that? I will give you another shocking fact. The phrase, go to heaven, is not mentioned in the entire Bible, not even once. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not in God's presence after we die. We are. But the phrase, go to heaven, is not mentioned even once in the entire Bible. Yet, the Western gospel has made that our hope, and it's also one of the central pieces of bait that we use to get people into Christianity. You could go to heaven and live with God forever one day. But if the Bible doesn't even talk about that, that's not the central theme. So why is it that the Bible has very, 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 very little to say about what heaven is like? Why is that? It's a very important question, and we're going to hopefully... Uh, tackle that a little bit. We're going to look at that today. The very first mention of heaven is in the first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word heaven is shamayim, and if you've been around for a while, anything that ends in I am in the Hebrew, im, is plural, like Elohim. The word for God is plural. It's always plural. Well, the word for heaven, is, it's actually heavens. It's always plural. What does that word heavens mean? Shamayim. It actually means skies. That's all it means. It doesn't mean the place where God lives. doesn't mean the place where you're, going to where you're going after you die. It literally means skies. And I really wish that all the modern Bible translations just simply translated the word skies because that's what it means um water the word water is always plural in hebrew and we don't really see that it's always the waters and some scholars think that part of the reason it's pluralized is because it's trying to speak of something that's very big and uh very expansive or maybe complex so you look up in the sky it's really big it's really really big so that word heavens, every time you see that word in the Old Testament, it literally means skies. Now, that sounds weird to us, skies. We say there's only one sky. But, you know, I think it was United Airlines used to say, fly the friendly skies. And, you know, like that wasn't weird to us, you know. So um, that's all it means is skies. So Genesis 1.20, a couple verses after the first one, God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth 
across the expanse of the heavens. Where do birds fly? In the sky, not in the place where God lives. They fly in the sky. They fly in the heavens. So when you're reading your Bible, literally just substitute the word heavens for skies, okay? The birds fly in the skies, in the heavens. Um, there is no singular Hebrew word heaven as in the place where we imagine God lives and where we're going after we die. There just is not a singular word for that concept. So where in the world do we get this? Um, how did the word skies become the place where God lives or is from? Uh, good question. Glad you asked it. Um, the skies are up high. Uh, if you're up in the sky, you have a vantage point above everything. So when biblical writers say that God is up in the heavens, in the skies, it's not saying he lives up above the blue stuff or even past the stars, that he lives somewhere up there. God actually is everywhere. He lives everywhere, right? We actually live in him. He's everywhere. So where does God live? Everywhere. But when they say he, he lives in the heavens, in the skies, it's speaking of his transcendence, that he is high above everything, that he sees everything. There's nothing that, that is beyond his gaze and his knowing. So it's a poetic way of saying that he is exalted, that he is above all, that he, he is transcendent above everything. Psalm 2.4 says, he who sits in the heavens or in the skies laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. So biblical Hebrew, the concept is God is sitting up high. He's not just sitting in the air. He doesn't have a throne up in the air. He's sitting exalted, transcendent, lifted up, high above everything. Psalm 8.1, our Lord, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens or the skies. Um, Israel, Israel's God was not just a local, a local deity or a tribal God. The concept of spirit beings, what, what Israel and other nations would call lowercase gods, and the word in the, in the Hebrew is Elohim, plural gods, little g's, not the creator one, that gods were local, that they ruled over a territory. And so they would worship these regional spirits to try and get them on their side. Um, in, in 1 Kings 20, verse 23, the, it says, And the servants of the king of Assyria said to him, their gods, speaking of the Israelites, their gods are gods of the hills. And so they were stronger than we were because they had a battle in the hills and the Syrians lost to the Israelis. But let us fight against them in the plain and surely we shall be stronger than them. There, the concept was that deities, these spirit beings were territorial and regional and you had to worship the right spirit of that territory. So the biblical authors to say, no, 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 our God is not just a God of Israel, of our territory. 
He is exalted. He is in the skies. He is over all. He's over everything. He's transcendent over all of creation. It's poetic language. Speaking poetically, God is over all the earth. This is Rahab, the prostitute's Uh, who lived in Jericho when they sent the spies into Jericho before they were going to march on it. This was Rahab's report in Joshua 2.11. And as soon as we heard it, speaking of, we heard your God, your deity, parted the Red Sea and defeated Pharaoh's army and did all these things for you, right? As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the skies above and on the earth beneath. Rahab said, we know he's not just a local deity because he kicked Egypt's butt and Pharaoh's butt. And he kicked King Og's butt. And he's kicking all these people's butts all over the place. We know he's, we're scared because he's not just a territorial God. Your God is above all, in the skies and on the earth. And we are freaked out right now. That was her report. That was her report. So it kind of gives you a glimpse into the mentality and the concept of what the Hebrews meant when they said God is in the skies. It doesn't mean he lives there. It doesn't mean that that's where heaven is. Okay? So does he actually sit in the skies? Does he sit as we would say, past the stars. God is everywhere. But he definitely manifests his presence in certain places, right? He manifests himself in certain places. You can think of the story of Jacob's ladder or Jacob's stairway. He laid his head on a rock. He immediately fell asleep, had a dream. He saw a stairway. Some translations say ladder, but a stairway going up where? Into the skies. And he sees at the top of the stairway, there's God of all creation at the top of this stairway. And he wakes up and he makes this statement in Genesis 28, 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And that means spot. God is in this spot. And I didn't know he was here in this spot. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place, this spot? This is none other than the house of God, this spot. And this is the gate to the skies, the gateway to heaven. And he named that place Bethel, house of God. He was surprised that God's presence was in a geographical spot on the earth. He was surprised. God's presence was overlapping. God's space was overlapping with earth in that space. And he was surprised by it. And he said, this is the house of God. So later they actually, Jeroboam, erected a temple in that very spot. In that very spot. So there are places where where God's space overlaps with Earth's space. And for humanity in the past, those special places were called temples. 
And often when someone had an encounter, they would build a temple in that spot for that very reason. This is a portal. This is a gate. This is an intersection between God's space and earth's space. So that's what temples were. This was where God placed his throne. In the actual tabernacle, in the temple, where did God sit? God actually sat. It says his throne was on the mercy seat. He sat between the cherubim on the mercy seat, and the mercy seat was the lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. That's where he sat. That is where he decided to make his throne. Now, does that mean when he sat down there that he was nowhere else? No, he's still everywhere, but he's not in the sky. He's there. So that was his throne. Jesus 151 in Jesus. Uh, I'm sorry. In John 151, Jesus had a word of knowledge about Nathaniel. He saw Nathaniel under the fig tree and he called him a righteous man. He said, there's no guile in you. He said, how do you know that? He said, I saw you under the fig tree. Who knows if he was praying? Who knows if some, you know, a prostitute came up and propositioned him and he said, no, I can't do that to the Lord. You know, we don't know what happened, but Jesus had a word of knowledge. And he said, Nathaniel was like, wow, you are the son of God. He was amazed. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven. And guess what? In the Greek, that word heaven also means sky. It means skies, sky. You will see the sky opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He was using Jacob's encounter and saying, I, you're amazed at what I just did? I am the open portal from God's space to earth's space. I am now God's house manifest in a person. I mean, it's, it's pretty radical. He's basically saying you will see a place where heaven and earth meet. I am that place. I am that place. That's what a temple was, an intersection between heaven and earth. Eden, the Garden of Eden, is a temple. Mountaintops and gardens were places where the gods lived because there's abundance and they're exalted. They're high and lifted up. Eden is a temple. The Garden of Eden was a temple. God was there. The tabernacle and later the temple all had drawings and carvings of fruit and palm trees and garden imagery to hearken back to this is the place where God dwells in the garden. It's, a, it's Eden imagery. So anywhere you see garden imagery and garden of Eden imagery and fruitfulness and abundance, it's speaking of God's space touching that location on earth. And it turned, he turns deserts into gardens. That's what happens when God's space intersects with earth's space. Or we would say when heaven comes to earth. Part of the reason I'm sharing this, this is maybe a bad analogy, but in Toy Story 2, there's an owner of a toy store, and he's got all, you know, Woody's Roundup figurines, all of them in pristine condition except Woody, and he's looking for Woody. And he goes to the garage sale, and he sees Woody, and he starts freaking out. 
but he knows this thing is worth a lot of money, and I don't want to pay a lot of money. So he takes it and surrounds it by a bunch of other junk, and he says, I'll give you 25 cents for all this junk. What he's trying to do is he's minimizing the value of something to try and trick the lady. And we know from Scripture that Satan and the demonic, they actually make doctrine. Because it says that some will follow doctrines of devils, doctrines of demons. So they actually do invent doctrine. And I believe what has happened is the devil has so distorted this image of heaven as in the place where we're all going to go and be forever after we die. That's not even biblical. He's so exalted that that it's actually diminished the temple language and what that actually means for you and I. He's diminishing our identity and diminishing the power of a spiritual reality by exalting something uh, that's actually not even biblical so high that it becomes our end goal and it never was in the Bible. I hope that makes sense. I'm trying to give you some why behind I'm sharing some of this stuff. It's not just Oh, that's cool. I got smarter today. It's not that. Um, so in Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees a vision. He sees the Lord in his temple, and he says, I saw the train of his robe filling the temple with his glory. He looked into the temple. He saw into the Holy of Holies. Isaiah was never allowed to go in there. He's not the high priest. It's illegal for him to be there. But the Lord shows him in a vision. There is the Lord. But he only sees his bottom half in the temple, and his robe is flowing and filling the temple. Well, where's his top half? In the skies, right? So was his top half really in the skies, and only his bottom half was in the temple? Not really. It's a poetic way of saying God is so big. He is in the temple, but he is transcendent beyond this building. He, is, he fills the earth. His glory fills the earth, okay? Transcendence. Solomon's opening prayer dedicating the temple in 1 Kings 8, 27, he says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven, or skies and the highest skies, cannot contain you. How much less this little building? So even Solomon is acknowledging, like, there's nothing that can hold you. The sky can't hold you. Space can't hold you. There's nothing big enough to hold you. You fill everything. But somehow, your presence is in this place. Somehow you manifest yourself in this temple. That's amazing. That's incredible. In the Old Testament, there's no concept of us going of people going to God's space. It's only God coming to our space and him letting people into his space. But there's no concept of us going up into God's space. There are two stories, only two in the Old Testament. They're very special and very unique of Enoch being taken. We don't know where he was taken. It just says God took him. We, uh, we assume to be where he was, right? But then Elijah was taken up into where? The sky by a whirlwind. So the implication is he went to 
God's space. He went to be with the exalted Lord. But other than that, like if you were to ask uh, 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 an Israelite during that time, hey, or when you die, are you going up to heaven? They would be like, what? No, I'm going the exact opposite direction. I'm going into the dirt. I'm going to sleep. What they believed is that your body went into the dirt. You went into the dirt. You basically slept. And then sometime later when God recreates the world, you will be resurrected and you will be made new into this new world. There was not a concept of going up into the sky like we believe. Uh, they were that totally foreign idea to them. Eventually, as the story of Scripture progresses, they had a more unfolding revelation that, yes, your body goes into the ground, however, you still have a consciousness and that you are with God. But guess what? They didn't elaborate on what that looked like. Why? Because that's not what the story of the Bible was about. That's not us going up into the sky, living in heaven forever is not the end of the story, and it's not the main storyline either. That's not the goal. What is the goal? For God's space to completely fill our space. And there, believe it or not, there's a lot of descriptions. There's almost nothing that describes our concept of what we would call heaven or going to heaven. There's almost nothing in Scripture about what it's like. But there is a ton of descriptions, a ton of scriptures that describes what happens to earth when God's space comes upon it. When heaven comes to earth, there's lots of descriptions of what that looks like. Why? Because that's the main plot of the story. And guess what? That's the end of the story. That's the end of the story. It changes the way we live our life today, when you know what the end goal is and the main plot of the story. When we die, we will be with the Lord, but that is temporary until he comes back, until he makes all things new and we get a new body, heaven comes to earth. Us surfers, it brings me comfort, you know, us surfers, we, we joke about heaven and perfect waves in heaven and you know, I've sacrificed for the Lord, and I've given up a lot of surfing to follow Jesus. So I believe that the Lord is going to reward me greatly with a house on the beach with some amazing perfect waves with sharks that don't bite you, and you always get barreled, and you always, when you do an air, you always land, right? That heaven, that surfer heaven, except you read stuff in Scripture that says, and there is no sea, and you go, oh, bummer. Stinks for me. <laughs> Stinks for me. Is, does that really mean that there is no ocean in heaven? No, it doesn't. It's poetic language. There isn't a space up above the stars that's got a sea or whatever. It's not there. It's not there. But guess what? Scripture does say God is going to make this world brand new. And we will have new resurrected bodies that have no death and no decay and we won't reproduce because there won't be any death. We won't need to reproduce. 
So we're coming back here. We're coming back here. Earth is the end goal. A new earth, a recreated earth, a earth that has 100% all of God's values operating in it. So guess what? There will be waves in heaven. <laughs> there will be snowboarding in heaven, right? In the new earth. That is the main storyline, and that is the end of the story. So there's very little. Why would they spend a bunch of time describing a very short, temporary experience, us dying, being with the Lord, and then he comes back and recreates everything, and we're alive again? It, it makes perfect sense why they wouldn't. That's just a side note. Who cares about that, right? That's not the end of the story. So if you were to ask are you going to the sky when you die? Newsreelite would say, you're crazy. I'm going down there. Well, it's interesting. I'll skip some of these. Well, I'll read them. They're quick. They believe that when God did remake everything, that they would come out of the ground and be re-embodied to live in the new creation. Here's a couple scriptures for you. Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, they're dead, okay? And they're sleeping in the ground, shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So they believed you go into the ground, you fall asleep, you die, you will be raised up again, some of us to glory, some of us to judgment. Isaiah 26, this is to evil people, to wicked people. They are dead, they will not live. They are shades, they will not arise. To that end, you had visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. So some Hebrew poets just say, for the wicked, when you die, that's it. That's all you get. That's the end for you. But a couple verses later, verse 19, this is to the righteous. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. The earth, when God remakes everything, the righteous dead, according to this scripture, will pop out of the ground and be reborn. These are the Hebrew concepts of death. The idea of humans, this is interesting, the idea of humans being recreated to a new existence to inhabit this world forever is uniquely Jewish. Uniquely Jewish. The very first written description of anything like that, and that would be reincarnation, was thousands of years after Abraham lived. Thousands of years. Literally, nobody before, you know, a couple hundred years before Jesus Nobody believed that you, anyone was raised from the dead or resurrected or reborn. When you died, game over. That's it. That's what all of humanity believed. But the Jews believed there is a resurrection. We inherited that. Um, even the Sadducees in Jesus' time didn't believe in the resurrection. You remember that? And Jesus actually said, no, you don't know God. You don't know his power. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the living, not the dead. 
they are alive. He's the God of the living. So he said, you're wrong. Uh, you're, you're, you don't have an unfolding revelation yet. Um, and Jesus tells this story. It's amazing. Luke 16, 22. This is the rich man and Lazarus. We're very familiar with this story. The poor man Lazarus died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Doesn't say they took him up into heaven. He was carried, the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So even in Jesus' day, Jesus told a story of two dead guys, but their spirits or souls, the eternal part of them, are conscient, are conscious. One of them, Lazarus, is in a place that Jesus said called Abraham's bosom. He didn't say it's up in the sky. He said it's Abraham's bosom. And this other rich man, we don't know his name, was in Hades, and he was being tormented. He could not talk to God. He couldn't see God, but somehow he could see Abraham, and he could see Lazarus. He could see that there were people in paradise, in glory, and he wasn't. And he said, hey, you know, send Lazarus, give me some water on my tongue. And Abraham's like, there's a chasm. There's a divide that we cannot cross. You can't come over here, and we can't go over there. Game over. This is it for you anyway, right? But there was a, a belief in uh, Second Temple literature before the time of Jesus, several written documents the, in the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha, and Jesus is literally saying, yeah, this principle is true. He's telling this story. They believed that when a Jewish person died, that they would actually go to be with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and they would all recline at table, and Abraham would comfort the father of the Jewish faith would comfort the deceased until God resurrected them all from the dead in the recreated world. They believed that, which is interesting because when John is telling the story of the Last Supper, right, what is John doing? They're all reclining, reclining at table with the king, eating, and John is laying on Jesus's chest. It's a picture that that God's space, right? That God's space when we die we go to God's space and there we 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 can lean on Abraham. Well, John is like, "Ah, oh, this right here, Jesus in our presence is what we would say heaven on earth." Heaven on earth. It's a glimpse by the biblical authors to say, look, Jesus brought God's kingdom and culture, and it's an overlapping of heaven and earth, and it's a tiny glimpse of the big thing that God is eventually going to accomplish and wants us to do. Pray heaven comes to earth. And this, this concept of the afterlife of dying and going into God's space and Laying on the chest and being comforted, there's John like, ah, we're living heaven on earth. 
except John didn't know what was about to happen. Jesus was going to the cross the next day. But there he is. It's a glimpse. It's language of heaven overlapping with earth. So the bliss of the saved person is pictured as a great feast in which the favored one reclines with his head on the bosom of the great patriarch Abraham. Jesus also said this in Matthew 8, 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven or in the kingdom of the skies, in God's space after you die. And in the end, we are all going to eat together and hang out together. It's awesome. It's awesome. It's awesome. All the key passages in the prophets up to the point of Jesus point to the hope of the world. That point to the hope of the world is not of people leaving earth and going to God's space. It's the exact opposite. It's of God's space coming to fully overlap the earth. That is the prophetic hope. That is the prophetic hope. Oh, skip that for sake of time. You know what? Why don't we just stop right there? Let's stop right there. I was gonna, I'm going to do more next week anyway, but we'll just stop right there. Why don't you guys stand up with me? I would love for you to go home and start digging into this, start looking into Scripture, stop think, start thinking about this. Hopefully, as I share next week and unpack some more about what it means that we are the temple individually and corporately is saying something much more powerful, much more profound, much more serious. And this concept of us escaping the earth to fly away into heaven forever is actually stealing from that power of that message and the power of that imagery. And when we fully grasp the depth of this, it will change how we work. It will change why we go to work, what we do, how we live our life. So we'll unpack some more of that next week. But you are the temple of God. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Heaven is in you and everywhere you go, you bring it potentially. <laughs> potentially. If you own the identity, if you're submitted to the will of the Lord, but a deep revelation of this will change you. It will change you. How many of you are grateful for God's word? I'm grateful for God's word. Lord, we just thank you so much for your written word. We thank you, Lord, that you have put your eternal truths on paper that we can access. Lord, even this right here, our Bibles are a gateway that opens up heavenly spiritual realities that brings the realities of your space and your kingdom into our space, into our hearts, into our lives, into our marriages. So, Lord, we ask that you would open our spiritual eyes, open 
the eyes of our heart, that we would have understanding, that we would be able to grasp the storyline and the goal of what it is you've been trying to do this whole time. We want to fully participate and cooperate and submit and surrender to what you are trying to do. Help us understand that. I bless all your beloved sons and daughters in this room. I thank you for these temples, and I bless them in Jesus' name. Let me leave you with one last thing. When you wake up tomorrow morning without doing anything, you will have woken up as a temple. If you surrender to that truth and confess that truth, it will change your day. It will change your day. It will change mine. I am having to work to undo my false imagery of an escape up into the skies forever and ever and ever. Right? And you need to as well. Confess this. Meditate on it. We're going to unpack some more next week or maybe even the weeks to come. Right? Bless you. Love you. The Lord loves you. Go give him heaven this week. Go be an uh, effective temple in your space. Amen?